We are in the middle of this series, uh, Incomparable Jesus, and we are in Luke 8. And in Luke 8, uh, Jesus wants us to understand that the people whose advice you take will dramatically influence the quality of your life. The people you're influenced by, the people you listen to, will determine how your life plays out. I, when I was in high school, I was in a death metal band. Yeah, I was. I was the drummer for said death metal band, and my friend Frank, the front man, as we like to call him, found out about this kind of like underground, secret, super sketchy high school concert that was going on in the back of a bowling alley. Yes, it's as trashy as it sounds. And so my friend Frank's like, dude, we got to go. This is going to be sick. And we show up. And little did I know, Frank had ulterior motives for being at that particular show. When we get there, there was something in the hardcore scene, yes, that's a phrase, that was happening called two-stepping or hardcore dancing. Anyone know what I'm talking about? It was not really dancing, it was more like fighting. But what one would do was one would first enter the mosh pit, the place of the moshing, and then they would begin to stomp their feet aggressively. Now that would be okay with me, and I would have enjoyed participating in such activity as a 17-year-old drummer. But then the arms enter, and so the goal was to windmill one's arms from side to side as fast and aggressive as you could. Anyone ever two-stepped out there in that way? Oh, a few of you. Well done. I see you, my man. Sean Buell, did you raise your hand? Is that what we're talking about? <laughs> So Frank and I are in the middle of this mosh pit, two-stepping, you know, going to town, and all of a sudden, I get hit in the face with Frank's fist. And he hit me so hard that he dropped me. He knocked me out. And I'm on the ground in the middle of this mosh pit, unconscious for like three seconds. And when I come to, my face hurts so bad. It was just like every pain nerve ending that I had in my body had migrated to my face and decided to send signals to my brain. It was so painful. And so I go to stand up and I collapse. And then all the pain in my face immediately migrated down to my right ankle because I had shattered it. While I was on the ground, my right ankle had landed on top of my left foot. And someone who was two-stepping had stomped on my ankle and shattered it. And this was compounded pain because none of my friends could drive, and they all thought it was funny. So they made me drive them <laughs> to their houses while I was going into shock, driving with my left foot, and I got home, and let me tell you, my dad was not happy with me. <laughs> All that to say, be careful whose influence you follow. I was very reluctant to do this two-stepping, hardcore, fist-swinging thing that my friend Frank said would be fun and would be cool to do. That fun and cool landed me in the hospital. And in a much bigger way, a much more important way, who you decide to follow and the advice that you take, what you say yes to and what you believe, will dramatically influence how your life turns out. And Jesus is making this point over and over in the teaching before our story. And that's really important. In verse 15, he summarizes the parable of the sower by saying he's looking for people who, after hearing the word, hold it fast and bear fruit. 
In verse 18, after another parable, he summarizes it by saying, take care then how you hear. I wish I would have heard that before I met my friend Frank. And just in case the reader still is like, what's Jesus doing here? He tells a story where his family says, hey, come meet us. And he responds, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. So us as the reader in Luke 8, we're prepared to engage in a story where hearing and doing will be required. And that's exactly what the disciples meet when they're sent into the storm. They had an opportunity to hear and to do. That is to believe and to trust who Jesus says he was, and they failed to do so. I mean, we got to give them a little bit of credit. Imagine you were in that boat. Imagine you're one of the 12 disciples and you're having a peaceful lunch with Jesus on the Galilee seashore. Some of the disciples have caught some fresh fish and you've just cooked up a, a nice breakfast of fish and bread. And it's a beautiful day, the sun's shining, and Jesus says, hey, let's go over to the other side of the lake. And you've been following Jesus long enough to know if Jesus wants to go to the other side of the lake, there's a good reason for it. And so you quickly pack up breakfast and you happily get into the boat. It's a beautiful day. The disciple who's captaining the ship knows the route and everything's going fine. Jesus decides to take a nap because he's had a really busy ministry schedule. It's kind of a picture-perfect day. Then all of the sudden, out of nowhere, this massive windstorm descends from the hills and the waves start getting a little bit bigger and you start to brace yourself on the side. And with a matter of minutes, waves start crashing in over the size of your 18-foot wooden boat, and water begins to fill. Everyone frantically trying to use their hands or a pail and try to get the water out of the boat because you are sinking. But the small amount of water you dump back into the ocean is only returned with gallons and gallons. And pretty soon, pretty soon you're standing in this water. It's up to your knees and the boat starts sinking and the top of the boat is almost equal with the waves that are crashing over. And you know your cousin and your friends, they have died on this lake because these storms happen often. So you know it is possible I'm about to die. I am in real danger. And all of a sudden, someone from the front of the boat says, where's Jesus? And the whole group immediately turns to the back of the boat and finds Jesus asleep. You all rush to him, wake him up, shouting, Master, Master, we are perishing. We are going to drown. And Jesus calmly but quickly stands up and speaks to the winds and the waves, and they cease. These massive waves that were once swallowing up the boat become like glass. And the wind that was pressing against your face immediately stops. And you and the other disciples are just standing there speechless. What just happened? And after several minutes of awe and astonishment and silence, Jesus turns to you and he says, Where is your faith? Where is your faith? We need to give the disciples a little bit of credit here. As Shannon taught so well, they're not being dramatic, and Jesus is not grumpy because he was woken up from his nap. They were perishing. And Jesus responds, where is your faith? Now, at first, that seemed a little bit odd to me. Does that seem odd to you? Here's the situation. Disciples are in a boat. The disciples are about to die. The disciples call on the name of Jesus. The disciples get rebuked. What am I missing? <laughs> and as I studied it, I came across the writings of a pastor in New York City called Tim Keller, who we quote often. 
And he talks about how the words here, where is your faith, is not so much a slap on the wrist, but an invitation to believe and to apply what they already know about God to this situation. Where is your faith is saying, Matt, you believe in me deep down inside. Find the part that believes in me and apply that to this storm, to this moment, to this situation. Because the disciples had seen Jesus use his power for good over and over. He had raised the widow's son from the dead, power for good. He had healed a man who had a shrunken, withered hand, and with his word, the hand grew back. The centurion soldier whose servant was sick, he wasn't even in the facility. He hadn't even got there yet, and he spoke the word, and the servant came back and said, your, your servant is healed. Over and over, Jesus uses power for good, power to heal, power to love. And what Jesus is saying is, remember who I am in this storm, in this hard situation, in this tough time. I have on either side of me two statements about God. Over here is the statement that God is powerful. This side of the room, you are God is powerful. How does that feel? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Not too bad. See how the other side of the room can do? This side of the room, you guys, oh, already. You guys represent God is good. How do we feel about that? God is powerful. Can we try that again quick, please? This side of the room is God is powerful. Okay, there we go. There we go. And I am going to preach this sermon in between these two truths, in between the realities that God is good and God is powerful. And church, this is where you should live your life. This is where you exercise your faith. This is how you get through the storms in the tough times. And what we need to do is we need to learn to introduce our fear to our theology. What we need to do in the moments where we're scared, in the moments where we're in crisis, where the moments where we're overcome by fear, we need to think about that thing and bring it to what we know is true about God, that he is powerful and he is good. Jesus's statement, where is your faith, is not so much a rebuke as much as it is an invitation. Trust God in the storm. Oswald Chambers, in his beloved devotional, My Utmost for His Highest, says this, commenting on this passage. He says, quote, It is when a crisis arises that we instantly reveal upon whom we rely. It is when a crisis arises that we instantly reveal upon whom we rely. And the disciples unknowingly were relying on themselves their own understanding of the sea, their own ability to navigate, their own ability to problem solve. And when they came up against a storm of life that was too great for their own abilities, it was exposed that they needed someone more powerful and more good to rely on to get them through this storm. And so what Jesus is asking us to do is when we are scared, when we're fearful, we need to take our fear by the neck and hand it over to Jesus. We need to think about and wrestle through our fear and commit it and think about the things we know are true about God. Now, what I'm not saying is that you should just ignore or pretend your fear is not there because no healing can happen within the context of a lie. 
What we need to do is we need to actually take that fear and we need to think about it, but not let it dominate us. You know, fear is like leaking water. If you leave it alone, it's only going to get worse. Going to get an amen from our homeowners out there. If your pipes are leaking, don't leave that alone. Stop it before it gets worse. And that's a little bit like fear in our life. We can't just leave it alone, but where can we take it? Well, we take it to God. Ed Welsh, who's a Christian psychologist, says it this way. I love this. He says, Scripture assumes that our lives will experience endless threats. That doesn't sound very nice, does it? The Bible assumes that in your life, you are going to come up against endless threats. The goal of the Christian faith is not to eliminate the threats. The goal is to merge our fear and our faith into the same sentence. The goal is to take our fear and invite it to consider our theology. The psalmist, the, the, the people who wrote the book of Psalms, which are worship songs for the people of God, over and over, they'll say, man, I'm scared to death, but I'm going to trust in the Lord. They say, my enemy is overtaking me, but I am going to put my hope in God. That is introducing your fear to your theology. What, what the psalmist is doing is comparing the power of the thing they're scared of with the power of God. And when you compare the power of the thing you're scared of with the power of God, like the disciples, it will look like a toddler splashing in the bath. That storm looked like nothing compared to Jesus' ability to immediately and totally silence it. You know, I experienced this in my own life even this week. On Thursday night, I was sitting down around 4 o'clock, and I lead the high school ministry here as well at Southlands, and I had a really full and busy week. I'm not normally a really busy guy, but this week there were a lot of things I really cared about that I was responsible for. Preaching here on Sunday morning, leading youth group, a really big party I was hosting that I cared a lot about. And I got to my desk at four o'clock to kind of sew pieces together and go over my message for Thursday, and I just began to feel so hopeless. I just began to hear these thoughts, like, what are you doing here? You have nothing to offer these students. You haven't prepared the way you should have been. You can't uh, execute this vision you have for these things. And over and over, anxiety just began to wash over me. And I just, I just sat there for about 15 minutes hearing these lies about how I had no control to live out what God had called me to do. And throughout that time, I just began to consider the power of those things, and I began to consider the goodness and the power of God. And I began to speak to myself, and I said, no, these are not my high school students. These are God's high school students. And he wants to meet with them. And he, in this season, has says, Ryan McDonald, I want you to lead this community. And if he called me, that means he's going to equip me. And ultimately, even if my message on Thursday night is a flop, even if I forget to bring the supplies for the game, God will continue to pursue and love and meet with the kids of our church. And I took my fear and my anxiety and I introduced it to my theology. What I knew to be true about God in peace just began to wash over me and God gave me the confidence and the strength I needed to do the next thing. Now this will not happen automatically. That's why the context is so important. Hear and do. Hear and do. Right now, you're hearing true things about God. The doing happens when you are faced with a fear that seems eminent, that seems like there's no way out of that situation, and you need to take what you know of God's word, and you need to preach to yourself. 
It's not just pastors who preach. All Christians should be preaching to themselves regularly about who God is in those tough moments. I want to take a quick moment just to speak to my brothers and sisters who have some sort of fear of death. Because most directly, this passage is about fear of death. It's about a group of followers of Jesus who thought they were going to die, and they were overtaken by fear. And that may be fear that you experience about your own life coming to an end. That may be fear about a loved one or a terminal illness. I've even met people who are really fearful of what the afterlife is going to be like. And what the Bible says about that in 1 Timothy 6 is that God is all sovereign. He's the king over the whole universe. What Romans 8 tells us is that nothing can happen to you outside of God's plan and control for your life. In James 4.15, it simply says, if the Lord wills, you will live. Everyone say, if the Lord wills, we will live. If the Lord wills, we will live. Do you know what that means? If you are in Christ, as John Piper said, you are immortal until God's work with you is finished. There is nothing that can come against you. What is Jesus doing in the text? He's showing his power over natural forces, the natural forces that could lead to our death. Jesus is saying, I have the final word. If you are in Christ, nothing can take you out before God determines it is good for you to come home into eternity. Isn't that good news, church? Isn't that free us from the fear of death? And that might be a process for you. I'm not saying you've heard this once and so you're never going to fear death again. But this is the truth I'm encouraging you to recall in your moment of fear. When you are faced with that fear of death. You know, I actually, I don't get pictures a lot when I prepare, but I had this picture of this individual and they, they couldn't breathe. They were trying to breathe and there was all these things coming against them and the room they were in was getting smaller and smaller and smaller and the oxygen was leaving and they were just gasping for air, gasping for air and it felt like from all sides they were being pressed down and the word of the God, the word of God was declared and I saw the spirit immediately take them into an open field where this individual just began to breathe and their space wasn't small anymore. It was large because they could see who God was and they could see that it's going to be okay. Church, that's what it looks like to introduce our fear to our theology, to say, I know this thing has power. There's real power in this world that comes against us. But oh, how much greater is the power of our Lord who literally stands on the edge of a boat and with a word calms a storm. That is the God that we serve, and that is the God we remind one another of often. So we should trust in Jesus because he saves us from fear of death. The second thing, and the last thing I want to say about this passage, is that we should trust Jesus because he saves from fear of powerlessness. Not only does he save and he's worthy of our trust, he's worthy of us hearing and doing the things he says about life because he can free us from the fear of death, he can also free us from the fear of powerlessness. Now we're going to read through this and some of you have a handout and we might have the words on the screen, but I want you just to really try to picture as if it was a movie what is happening in this story because there's a lot of moving parts. And just a quick summary, Jesus is going to arrive where he was going and he's going to be immediately met by a man who's demon-possessed. 
And there's going to be a spiritual battle that happens between these demons and between Jesus. Meanwhile, Jesus is going to reveal his power so much that people are going to ask him to leave. Because <laughs> Jesus is so much greater than the powers that they were used to. And at the end of that story, this man who's going to be delivered is desperately want to go with Jesus and go on this world preaching tour <laughs> that Jesus and his disciples are on. And Jesus doesn't allow him to go because he sends him as a missionary back to his hometown. So listen and let the story grab you now that you kind of have the plot line. So they arrived in the region of the Gerasenes across from the Lake of Galilee. And as Jesus was climbing out of the boat, man, give this guy a break. A man who was possessed by demons came to meet him. For a long time, he had been homeless and naked, living in the tombs outside the town. As soon as he saw Jesus, he shrieked and he fell down in front of him. Then he screamed, why are you interfering with me? Jesus, son of the most high God, please, I beg you, do not torture me. For Jesus had already commanded the evil spirit to come out of him. The spirit had often taken control of the man, even when he was placed under guard and put in chains and shackles, he simply broke them and rushed into the wilderness, completely under the demon's control. Jesus demanded, what is your name? Legion, he replied, for he was filled with many demons. The demons kept begging Jesus, do not send us into the bottomless pit. There happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on a hillside nearby, and the demons begged him to let him enter the pigs. So Jesus gave them permission. And when the demons came out of the man, they entered the pigs, and he entered the herd and plunged down the steep hillside into the lake and drowned it. When the herdsmen saw it, they fled to the nearby town and surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they went. People rushed out to see what had happened. A crowd soon gathered around Jesus, and they saw the man who had been freed from the demons. He was sitting at the feet of Jesus, fully clothed and perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what had happened told the others how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And all of the people in the region of the Gerasenes begged Jesus to go away and leave them alone, for a great wave of fear swept over them. So Jesus returned to the boat and left, crossing back to the other side of the lake. And the man who had been freed from the demons begged to go with him, but Jesus sent him home, saying, no, go back to your family and tell them everything God has done for you. So he went throughout all the town, proclaiming the great things Jesus had done for him. Wow. Wow. We are introduced to a man who was completely powerless. This man who was possessed by these dark spiritual forces, he couldn't speak for himself. As you read the text, you don't know if the demons are speaking or you don't know if the man's speaking. They have so controlled him that they have become one. Jesus asked the man what his name is and the demons respond. And you don't actually know who's in control, who's talking. Not only that, but this man is driven into the wilderness. He's forced into isolation. He can't even live among the living. He lives among the tombs. He lives among the dead because he, his human dignity has been so taken away that he's kind of a shell of what God originally intended for his life. 
And we could so easily disconnect from these people, but this was a son. This man had a mom and a dad. Can you imagine just the pain of his father watching him? Thinking back to all those memories of pushing his son on the swing or teaching him the family trade, and now my son, he runs around town like a maniac. He tears his clothes off, he's homeless, and we try to help him, we don't know what to do. All we can do is chain him, all we can do is pin him down and guard him, but even that, he breaks free from the chains and he runs around like a madman. Can you feel the pain of this mother's prayer? My son, who I loved, who I nursed, who I raised. His life is totally out of control. He's powerless. Please, who can help my son? Who can help him? Who can free him from this profound sense of powerlessness that rules his life? And the answer was no one until the man met Jesus. The answer is no one until this man met Jesus. I want you to notice Jesus' ultimate power over the situation. From the moment Jesus stepped on that shore, the master had come to put his house in order. The demons at every turn are begging and asking for permission and pleading. They have no authority. They force the man to kneel down in a posture of worship, even among them knowing who was really there. Jesus at every turn is exhibiting power. This is like at work when your CEO decides to show up to the office and everyone sits up straight and cleans up their desk and is on their best behaved work ethic. I mean, I remember when I was a high school teacher and I got supervised in the classroom. You better believe those were like my best lesson plans. When I knew I was being supervised by my supervising teacher, like I had all these fun things for the students to do. They were, I was like, pick your favorite, I taught New Testament, pick your favorite Bible story and let's color it. And then you come up here and tell us why it's your favorite. And students are engaged. And why? Because the master was in the house. And so things were set in order. And that's what's happening here. Jesus is in control of this whole situation. And nothing can happen outside of his permission. You know, we respond differently when we're faced with powerlessness. Some of us tend towards control. When you're faced with powerlessness, you just decide to take care of it. You, you are the meticulous planners. <laughs> you have your whole lives planned out. Everything happens a certain way. You don't trust people. You do everything by yourself. And when you let people share power, you just critique them. I, I bend more towards this way. And it's something that I'm working on God with. When I'm faced with powerlessness, I kind of almost, you know, puff up and just try to take care of business. But if COVID has taught us anything, it's our plans don't mean much. <laughs> and the other type of person, when they experience powerlessness, they, they shrink back. They actually don't have courage and confidence to take that next step. Maybe they've needed to apply for a job for years, but they just kind of can't get to the application. Some of you maybe in this room have a conversation with your spouse or with a family member that you know needs to happen, but you just haven't got the courage to actually face that conversation. And in either situation, whether you overexert yourself to pretend like you're not powerless, or you underexert yourself because you're crushed, Jesus is the answer. Because the person who overexerts himself needs to realize that, man, God is powerful. 
that God will take care of this. And even if I don't do it perfectly, God is still overseeing my life. And the person who's underperforming needs to know that God is good and that he's patient and he's gentle with you. And all you need to do is take the next step. That's it. You don't have to figure out your life. You don't have to have a 10-year vision. You just need to take that next step because God is good. And God is powerful and God is good. Helps all of us when we experience powerlessness because ultimately he is the one who's in control and he is the one who's overseeing our lives. The last thing I want you to notice is that Jesus' power is relational. Look with me again at the verse 35. Listen to these sweet words. And the man is found freed from demons, sitting at the feet of Jesus. Sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and perfectly sane. See, when God exercises his power in our life, he's not like Rambo. He's not like kicking in the door, okay? He's not the governor just taking care of business and forcing people to do what he wants. Okay? When God exercises control in your life, you know how he does it? Relationally. Intimately. Slowly. This man is freed and he finds himself sitting at the feet of Jesus. Church, those words should be like honey on our lips. This beautiful picture of this man who Jesus' power isn't that he was the strongest and therefore he dominated. But his power is so much greater than that. He comes in and with love and connection, he frees us. Why? Because the more you get to know Jesus, hear this, the more you realize you don't have a lot to be scared about. The more you get to know your God, his kindness, his character, his power, his sufficiency for you, the more you get a picture of God that's large and high and lifted up, the smaller your problems will become and the smaller your fears will become. And it's when in that relationship, the more you get to know this God, the more we are freed from fear. The Bible tells us perfect love casts out fear. In Matthew 28, in this amazing moment where Jesus is about to ascend into heaven and leave his disciples for their mission. He says this, and Jesus came to them and said, all authority in heaven and earth, all power I have is given to you. Therefore, go and make disciples and behold, I am with you. Jesus's power is never detached from relationship with him. It is when we get to know God that we are freed. I want you to see just the profound scope of God's power. Think about what happened in this story. The demons don't want to be sent to the bottomless pit. That's their request. The demons have a problem. They know at the end of time, Revelation 20 tells us that the days of the demonic realm are numbered, and one day Jesus will completely eliminate and close off forever darkness. Amen. We look forward to that day. The demons don't know what's happening. They're scared that this is that moment. And so they try to workshop. They're like, man, we got to figure something out. We can't go to the pit. We can't be destroyed. And they see a herd of pigs. And so they come up with a solution. Well, maybe we've never possessed animals before. There's no record in the Bible of demons possessing animals. We've never been in animals before, but hey, that's better than being destroyed, and God's not going to let us go in other people. So they find a backdoor solution, and Jesus gives them permission. Sure, enter the pigs. They're finding a solution for not ending up in the bottomless pit. Church, where do they end up? 
falling down into a pit and drowning. Do you see just the, the magnitude of God's subversive and subtle power? Even when he looks like he's on the back foot, he is orchestrating and controlling all things. The things you're scared of in your life, the things that are assailing you may be the very things through that fear that God brings you victory and he makes you victorious. Not only that, but what were the disciples, oh, this is so good. What were the disciples scared of? Drowning. What happens to the demons? They drowned. Not only does God bring life to you with the things that you're scared of and build you up and work it for his good, but the thing you're scared of happening to you, God returns on your enemies. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that just profound, the power of our God that's relational and subtle, but ultimate control of what's happening in your life? And all this because we're in Christ. All this because we have said, I don't want to be led by myself anymore. I want to put myself under the administration of God. And God, what do you want me to do? I'm yours. You get to dictate my life. You get to oversee what happens to me. And when you step away from I'm in control to God's in control, you inherit God's unlimited power. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? Reading through this story really reminds me of my friend Zach, who works with me in youth ministry. He's a member here at this church, and I asked Zach permission to share some of his story, and he was excited to glorify God through what Jesus was doing in him, so he said yes. Zach came to us um, late 2017, and he had crippling fear and anxiety over getting sick. He described it when I talked to him this morning, like someone was daily chasing me, trying to kill me. He just had this gnawing fear, where he's looking over his shoulder all the time. Something's going to happen to me. I'm going to break my leg. I'm going to get cancer. I'm going to get a terminal illness. I'm going to get in a car accident. Just constantly filled with fear. He came to a service in 2018, and he responded to a sermon, and a group of pastors got around him and prayed for him, and Zach, in that moment, met Jesus. And in that moment, Zach experienced profound freedom from that daily fear. He describes that day so well in his own words. He said, it was like God gave me a seven-day head start on my problems. <laughs> it's so profound. He went from daily feeling like he wasn't going to make it to God giving him a seven-day head start on this feeling of fear. When COVID happened in March and just the news was kind of out of control on what this thing was and what this thing could do. Zach was then given an opportunity again to trust God, to hear and to do, to say, no, God, you're good. And Zach started to become anxious around um, COVID-19 and all that would mean for his health and his life group rally around him and they prayed for him and God powerfully met Zach. And today, Zach still has fear, but he has fear rarely. God has freed him from that daily ongoing sense because he is introducing his fear to meet his theology, because he's reminding himself of who God is and the power over his life. As the music team returns to the stage, I, I want to call us to respond to this story in two ways. And the first way is that everything we've been talking about only applies to the Christian. One of my favorite scholars, N.T. Wright, says it this way. He says, trust Jesus 
or find yourself at the mercy of the storm. We have two options in life. We can trust Jesus, the one who is all-powerful and is all-good, or we can be at the mercy of the storm. And church, when did the waters of the storm calm? When the disciples said, Master, Master, we are perishing. It is with that plea to God, Master, Master, I am perishing, that you are now under the administration of the God who rules over all things, and you are protected, and you are loved for all of eternity. And so if you have yet to put your faith in Jesus, if you've yet for the first time to say, God, I don't want to be in control of my life anymore. I want you to be in control of your life. This text would plead with you, do that today. Today is the day of your salvation. And secondly, some of you guys have a handout and some of you guys have been given a piece of paper and I want you to pull that out. And if you have a pen next to you, we are going to practice introducing our fear to our theology. I want you to take a moment as the band starts to play, just to pray and consider, man, what is the thing I'm fearful of right now? It, it could be something that's new, that's popped up in your life. It could be a chronic thing you've wrestled with for years, but I want you to write down, I want you to name, it could be one sentence or one word, I want you to name that thing you're afraid of. And I want you to take that thing I want you to consider its power over your life. And then I want you to prayerfully consider God's power over your life. And there are two truths about God. And if you're looking at that thing that you're scared of and you say, man, God is powerful. That can overcome my fear. Then come up here and introduce that fear to your theology and drop it into the truth of God's power. And if that thing is remedied by God's goodness, Pray God's goodness over your life and come up here and as an act of faith, there's nothing magic about these boxes. There's nothing mystical about what we're doing unless you attach your faith and this is an act of worship and prayer. It's gonna do nothing for you. But if this is a physical act of worship and prayer saying, God, I wanna trust you. I wanna depend on your power. I wanna depend on your goodness. We are here and trusting that God's gonna do a great work in your life today that God's going to bring freedom in an area that you have not experienced freedom before. And so we're going to sing, and I just invite you guys to stand if you're not writing. Those of you who are writing, just take throughout the next three minutes of this song and ask where you can invite your fear to meet your theology. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you are above all things. You're in control of all things. Thank you, God, that in the storm, even when it looks like you're asleep, you're not. Even when it looks like you can't be found, Lord, you are orchestrating and you are loving because you are all powerful and you are all good. So God, I pray right now as we prayerfully think about, as we vulnerably remind ourselves of the things that we're tempted to be fearful of, maybe not right now, but certainly in moments of crisis. And Lord, as we prayerfully come to the front and we invite that fear to meet our theology, God, would you work would you work as we learn to daily and weekly remind ourselves of who you are? Jesus, come and do a great work in our life, I pray in Jesus' name. So I invite you now to respond by bringing those fears to one of these two boxes and by standing with us and singing about Jesus' power over fear in our life.